Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 16th of July. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, it's been a very eventful week in world affairs for various different reasons, but we're pleased to be taking this episode to take a step back and talk about a more long-term issue, namely migration in the Mediterranean. So we're looking forward to our discussion with our guest on that shortly. Before we come to that, Emily, what's been your moment of the week? So I would like to note that and actually, there's I have a piece on this on thenewstatesman.com that readers can reuse. But um, there is instability in both Haiti and Cuba. In the former, the president was assassinated last week. In the latter, there are protests against the government. And U.S. Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said that people should not try to come to the United States from Cuba and Haiti to either as, as migrants or asylum seekers, and that even if they are able to establish a claim to asylum and establish that they are fleeing persecution, they will be turned away from the United States and resettled in a third country. Two things on this. The first is that under both international and, and US law, a person does have a right to seek asylum in the United States. So this is legally quite questionable, aside from, in my opinion, morally important. I would also just note that Mayorkas himself, his family came to the United States following the Cuban Revolution. And I think, you know, there was so much put out around the time of his nomination about, oh, and we're going to have this person who has, you know, who, who himself emigrated to the United States and who's done work for refugees. And he was on the board of the of HIAS, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. And I would just, you know, note that if this person can be put in charge of this institution of the U.S. government, and this is still our policy, it's worth asking whether this institution can exist and have humane immigration policy at all. So that's my moment. What is yours, Jeremy? Uh, yes, I'd also flag to listeners that Emily's column on US policy towards Cuba and its other southern neighbours is well worth a read, and that's on the New Statesman website, newstatesman.com. I'm going to flag two moments. One on Tuesday, uh, so the day before we're currently recording this, the death toll in South Africa rose to 72 in the violence that followed the jailing of the country's former president, Jacob Zuma. He uh, has been sentenced to jail over contempt of court to do with a corruption inquiry. But I think the sense that the, 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 the protest and the unrest that has followed this uh, sort of in some ways is, is, is the conflagration that started with that spark. But I mean, there's been a lot of evidence that 
unrest has been building in the country. It's had a very rough last year, both economically and in terms of COVID. So that's quite alarming. Another thing I wanted to quickly flag was there was a study out of the University of Southern California on July the 13th, which showed that or claimed that the giant dam that Ethiopia has built on the Blue Nile if it is filled as rapidly as some people say it will, it could reduce arable land in Egypt by up to 72%. This has been a, a long-growing concern. Ethiopia put, built the dam on the, on the Nile to deal with some of its energy shortages, but it has caused a great conflict between the Ethiopian government and Sudan and Egypt, which are downstream of the dam and claim that the, the, the dam will prevent them from, from receiving the water they need from the Nile. Obviously, both countries very reliant on the Nile for their irrigation. The issue came before the UN Security Council last Thursday, and I've written about it in my column in, in the New Statesman this week as an example of our new era of water conflict. This is one of a number of examples at the moment, many of them quite fast moving, where disputes over water and shifts of power to do with who controls flows of water are reshaping geopolitics. And I think that the dispute on the Nile is, is an example of that. I think that's also something worth watching. So from one big long-term multilateralist challenge to another, we don't read as much these days about migration across the Mediterranean, but it's still a huge topic. In fact, a report out on Wednesday of this week by the UN's migration agency said that Twice as many migrants and refugees had died while trying to reach Europe on dangerous sea crossings this year or in the first six months of this year than in the equivalent period of 2020, over a thousand people in total. So we're pleased to be joined to discuss this important topic by Emmanuel Schaas. Uh, Emmanuel is a journalist based in Berlin here, uh, covering German politics, European issues, but with a particular focus on migration and colonialism. She spent seven weeks on a migrant rescue boat in the Mediterranean in April and May of this year. She has an upcoming documentary on France 24 about the rescue operations that she witnessed in the Mediterranean that will be broadcast on July the 24th. And we're very pleased to say that she's written for the New Statesman movingly about her experiences in the Mediterranean on that ship. So Emmanuel, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. First of all, just tell us how you ended up on, on, on that ship. What, what, what brought you there? Well, it was actually a long time coming. I've been covering migration issues for a few years now. I had witnessed the arrival of a lot of asylum seekers in Europe in 2015, and that that is really what got me started with, with the topic in terms of reporting. I went to Lesbos, I went to Calais, I went to Malta. I guess the next step for me was really to go to Central Mediterranean to see what was happening there because Central Mediterranean is actually the deadliest maritime route to Europe for people who are trying to escape Libya and who are in search of a better life. And before we get on to your experiences on the ship, just give us a sense of the overall picture with Mediterranean migration at the moment? Because as you say, there are still people fleeing Libya, uh, north to Europe for a better life, as you say. What's the situation in terms of numbers of boats, people traveling over, and also who's responsible for what? Because I think that's that's crucial to this story, isn't it? I think it's very dire at the moment. Whether there are rescue boats or not, we can see that there are departures from Libya. I would like to remind everyone listening that Libya is a war-torn country, an unsafe country, a country where there's 
torture where people are uh, enslaved, black people are enslaved. And those are issues that I really wanted to, to highlight by going there. I wasn't really surprised by the state of things, so to speak, because I expected it to be like that. What really surprised me was the indifference of the authorities when it came to actually assist and organize the rescues, which they are in fact responsible of doing. Can you tell us a bit about what you saw that the authorities showed indifference to, which as like I just want to underscore for listeners, as you say, they have a responsibility to aid these people and and yet. So why don't can you tell us a bit about what you saw and and exactly what it was that they were ignoring? Yes, on the 21st of April, the Ocean Vikings, so the rescue boat I was on from the NGO SOS Mediterranean, answered a distress call that was relayed by another NGO alarm phone. In fact, a storm was coming and we sailed through the night towards this boat in distress to try and rescue 130 people that were on it. So we're talking about a rubber boat and we're talking about a storm that brought waves of up to six meters on us and also on that uh, rubber boat. So there was very, very little hope to to find any survivors. But of course, when when you are on a rescue boat, well, you do uh, try and perform a rescue. What was really shocking for me, who who witnessed it firsthand for the first time, was that the authorities simply didn't reply to the to 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 the several calls for assistance that the Ocean Vikings sent out to the Libyan Coast Guard, to the ITMRCC, which is the center of uh, maritime rescue of Italy, and uh, to Frontex. So this was very shocking. And uh, maybe we could listen to what the coordinator of the search and rescue aboard the Ocean Viking had to say about what we found uh, in the morning after, the morning of, of April 22nd. When we reached the, the the shipwreck position, we realized that there was nothing to do because uh, only the two sponsons were visible and all of the rest of the, of the rubber bottom went off. So no transom, no deck, nothing. So most probably the waves just uh, destroyed the deck and uh, the people collapsed with the, with the rubber bottom. Well, that's obviously a horrifying testimony, and I think many people listening might be surprised at how little support. I mean, SOS Mediterranee, which is the organisation you were on the, that runs the rescue ship, is an NGO. You mentioned Frontex, which is the EU's border agency. Why, as far as you can tell, wasn't there more support to try and rescue those? people who died? Well, in the morning of, of April the 22nd, Frontex did end up uh, having a dialogue with the Ocean Viking, but they said they had no jurisdiction. So they had a, pla- a plane, a surveillance plane uh, sent out. They were um, in, having conversations with the Libyan Coast Guard. So they, they are able to patrol. They are, they are doing what they are supposed to do. The question that remained was that, why was that plane not out at the moment the Ocean Viking was out to try and perform that rescue overnight? Why, why was there no coordination, no organization, and no assistance to an NGO, which is actually doing the, the job that is actually incumbent to the states to do? There's been an international convention for the safety of life at sea that was done in 1979. And this actually divides the sea into search and rescue zones. And those zones are the responsibilities, the responsibilities 
responsibility of states, of the authorities. That means that in Central Mediterranean, you have an Italian search and rescue zone, a Maltese search and rescue zone, and a Libyan search and rescue zone. When something happens in one of these zones, well, the authorities, the relevant authorities, are supposed to assist, to coordinate, or to organize the rescues. And I've seen none of that that night. And the result was that when we arrived after a storm, there was nothing left from that rubber boat. And uh, there were lifeless bodies floating around, and there was nothing the NGO boat could actually do for the people it was set to save in the first place. I want to come on to Frontex's role again, but just briefly, you mentioned that horrific scene. Just on a personal level, what was it like as a journalist to, to cover that? Because obviously, it's a story that has to be told. And I think that's one of the the most powerful things about your reporting from there, but it must also have been very hard to do so while facing such a harrowing sight. You know, it was hard, but I am alive and I'm here to testify, which is not something that the 130 people that were on board that rubber boat will ever be able to do. Even if it was hard and still is for me to have witnessed those scenes, I would never complain about having been there because this is my job as a journalist to witness such scenes and to be able to, to give a voice to, to people who don't have one anymore. So, of course, it's, it's harrowing. You feel a, a huge sense of responsibility to tell that story, but it's not something I would ever regret having done. Before we move on to some of the other experiences you had on the ship, in your piece you write about the fact that Frontex, this is the EU's agency, did have a plane in the area, is that right, when this ship went down? What was your sense about what they perceived as their responsibilities, humanitarian responsibilities, as an actor in this in, in the area when this ship was in distress? Personally, um, given what I have witnessed, I don't have the feeling that they do have a humanitarian duty. I perceive that they were doing what they were asked to do, being co cooperating with the Libyan Coast Guard, but I didn't really feel that they were uh, ready to perform any humanitarian tasks, which is also not exactly their function. They are here, uh, you know, we talk about Fortress Europe. They are here to, to prevent people from illegally entering Europe. But at some point, we as uh, human beings and fellow human beings have to ask ourselves in, you know, in which conditions, in which states we are ready to leave other human beings. When you see people who, are, who, who suffer from near-death experience at sea or when you see uh, lifeless bodies, which I did on that boat, uh, you really do wonder what policies can motivate inflicting that onto other people? I just want to interject to say two quick things. The first is that it is not as though parts of the world that people from which people are fleeing have had no interference or involvement from countries in the in Europe and the United States, right? So for example, there is an invasion of Libya, right? And I'm not saying that that's the only reason that Libya is a place that people are fleeing, but it's not irrelevant. You know, it, it's we say, oh, these countries and these people, they're not, I, I guess what I'm saying is we, we don't get to say it was our it was our concern then, but it's not our concern now. That's number one. Number two is exactly as you say, I think that there's this mentality from some in Europe and also the United States that, well, we need to protect our people. We need to, we need to keep our people safe. And it's just like at a certain point, doesn't that corrode your own humanity, right? If, if, if the way that you protect your people is leaving other people to die at sea, what does that do to your people? What does that do to the character of your nation? 
No, I, I completely agree. And also what really was something I, I became acutely aware of while at sea was that the Mediterranean is a no rights zone. It, it's, uh, you have uh, search and rescue zones that are in Europe, search and rescue zones that are in Libya. But what I've really noticed is that there, there, there's simply a lawless area that is the central Mediterranean and Europe is closing its eyes to what's happening there. And that's why I, I really wanted to report on those issues. There was another incident that you write about where the ocean Viking, the rescue ship you were on, was able to reach a, am I right to say a dinghy? I mean, or a sort of, it's an, or an inflatable that was in distress and was able to rescue people. Can you tell us about that? Well, this occurred five days after the, the shipwreck discovery. So you can imagine, uh, you know, on the ocean Viking, there's only professional rescuers. So there are people who are used to that kind of tragedies the way, you know, we cannot even comprehend, but their duty is really to perform rescue. So when five days after the shipwreck, they were able to actually perform uh, their duties, there was really a sense of relief and there were uh, 236 people that came on board. And I can uh, tell you that everybody was very happy to see those people alive and relatively well. Of course, there were uh, some injuries, you know, those people uh, had been staying at sea for quite an extensive amount of time. There's always the risk of being burnt by the petrol, which is on the deck of the rubber boat. And of course, there's a huge trauma, not only the trauma of being at sea, but also the trauma of uh, having been beaten up, enslaved, having lived through a very difficult moments in Libya. Maybe we could listen to Musa, who's a young uh, survivor that was on board. He talked to me about having been intercepted at sea twice by the Libyan Coast Guard, and he told me about how just how hard it was to get by in Libya. When we go back, they still keep us, start beating some of them. Some of us have even friends on the ground, understand? The beat, beat, beat. Shoot gun, shoot gun. The place is not safe. You understand? They didn't treat us right. Everybody know in the Libyan, there's no safe place. Libya is a very, very dangerous place. It's not a safe place. Yeah. Obviously, the sound quality there, we've got the sound of the boat and, and so forth in the background. Can you just sort of Tell us a bit about what, what he was conveying to you and also what else you heard from the people who were rescued and, and also in what state were they? I mean, they, they'd been uh, at sea for several, I mean, do you know how many days? Presumably a lot of them were in quite poor health. What, what were the kind of immediate needs of those who arrived on the Ocean Viking after that rescue? Well, most of them are in a state of shock. Uh, here, Musa was talking to me about how often he was beaten up. Um, the 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 testimonies I got, not only from him, but also from the other people rescued, was that they don't get enough food when they're in detention centers. They're getting tortured. Women are being raped. And also something I guess I wasn't quite completely aware of before going on the ship was the extent of the human slavery that is actually going on in Libya uh, against Black people. I guess hearing testimonies again and again on the boat telling me of people being sold. The cost of a life is uh, roughly 250 euros. That's what smugglers ask from people to cross the Mediterranean, knowing perfectly well that there's a high risk of them dying at sea. You know, all that was quite... Th those testimonies are very valuable because they can uh, hold the authorities accountable for, and that's why they're all the more precious to have now. Could you say a bit more about... You just mentioned smugglers. Could you say a bit more about their role, both kind of the niche that they fill and why it's so 
fraud. It's a very organized and unscrupulous trade uh, that you see. You have people who are enslaved, who earn very little money to, to work on construction sites, etc. They're saving up money to cross and to try their, their luck on a rubber boat to try and reach Europe. The cost of a passage to Europe is roughly between 250 euros and 400 euros. It's very well organized by, by Libyan people mostly that actually steal everything from someone before the departure. They push people in the boats. People don't have the right to turn back, otherwise they're beaten up or worse. They put out at sea on a dinghy boat. Often they are also intercepted by the same smugglers or by the Libyan police, who some of the people on the boat told me uh, were actually actively working with smugglers. I think listening to this, some might think if you have not been following the story or maybe not been following the politics of what's happening in these people's home countries, why why risk it? Why make the journey, right? People know it's dangerous. People know that there are smugglers. People know all of this. And yet, and so you spoke to one young woman who you quote in, in your piece about why she decided to try to make the journey. And I was hoping that you could speak a bit about what, what she and others told you. You know, if they are risking their lives, it means that they have nothing more to lose behind and to leave behind. And that's the case not only in Libya, but in the country of origin. More often than not, they are willing to sacrifice their lives. I heard this young man, Suleiman, who was 15 years old and who was telling me, you know, I I'm fully aware of the risk I'm taking by trying to, to, to cross the sea to join Europe, but that's a sacrifice worth making if that means I can reach a better life in Europe and I can help out my family. You have to imagine the state of despair one must be in to consider his life as so worthless. That, that was another thing that I really wanted to emphasize. And this young woman you were mentioning really wanted to continue to study. She had no particular ambitions beyond just finding a decent job for herself and just being happy in her own right. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Trust in politics is broken, so can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy, 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that brings us to a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. So our You Ask Us question this week is, what happens to people who are rescued? Obviously, there are these happy cases where rescue boats like the Ocean Viking are able to get to those in distress in time. But then what happens? Where do they get taken? What responsibility do states have? And are they living up to those responsibilities? Well, you know, there's a legal framework that actually stipulates that there's an amendment to that convention I was mentioning, the the SOLAS Convention on Search and Rescue at Sea. There's an amendment that uh, says that every uh, person rescued has the right to be brought to a place of safety where his or her fundamental rights will be respected and that as soon as possible. And as we've seen on the last rotation of the Ocean Viking, they had rescued almost 600 people, but they were adrift at sea for uh, around a week while the authorities were pondering whether or not they would attribute a place of safety and authorize uh, the Ocean Viking to disembark all those people. So this is an added trauma to people who have already been through so much. This is like not attributing a place of safety is against the law. Actually related to that, I wanted to hear your view, Emily, on how this relates to debates within the US about how to deal with migration from from its south. Obviously, it's it's different. The US has a, a sort of single integrated government. There's not the sea crossing dimension. But it too has run some pretty brutal policies towards migrants on its own southern frontiers. First of all, kind of where is the debate there at the moment? And secondly, do you feel that it's changed under the Biden administration? I'm really glad that you asked this because for a president who campaigned on restoring the soul of America, the immigration policies of this administration are, I would say, as draconian as his predecessors. He has kept policies in place from the Trump era that uh, we're, we're, be, we're essentially not taking asylum seekers right now, um, which again, as I said at the top of this podcast, is illegal. And also I personally would argue is immoral. Uh, there was a, a news cycle earlier on in this year, basically about how there are still children in containment facilities, aka the kids in cages, right? Like I, I don't actually think that immigration policy under Biden has been appreciably better at all from what it was under Trump. The irony of all of this is that according to basically every poll that's out there, Americans support immigration. Now, that doesn't mean that Americans support open borders. It doesn't mean that Americans don't have prejudice against migrants from different parts of the world, specifically our Southern neighbors. But the country does, generally speaking, Americans are supportive of immigration as a concept. The problem is that anti-immigrant groups and politicians can get a narrative out much more easily, right? And can shape narratives around elections specifically, such that I think candidates feel, including Democrats, feel uncomfortable saying, actually, you know what? People like immigration. And actually, it supports our economy. And even if it didn't, as a country that has destabilized much of our hemisphere, we have an obligation to try to give people a place to live with dignity. That is not a political message, I think, that people have, that people think will go over well, even though I think that it might be better received than politicians. Imagine. I, th- I find that as a European and also in the context of what Emmanuel had, had to report, 
sort of doubly depressing, obviously depressing in and of itself, but also from a European point of view, you know, if there, if there were sort of three big picture things that I would say I would have thought might help Europe move to a better place on all of this, I would say a kind of more, a more politicized, you know, debate and architecture on the EU side so that we could actually have these debates and that, you know, push for democratic change on these sorts of policies. That would be the first one. Secondly, greater integration of the relevant authorities uh, so that Europe could have a sort of have a common joined up policy on migration. And thirdly, more of an idea that Europe benefits from migration and, and can and can be a migration con- continent, can be somewhere that people move to, to better their lives and, and, and in the process contribute. And all three of those things, to one degree or another, apply to the US. It is It is a political federation. It has got a federal administration and it has this mentality of being a a country of migrants. And yet, despite all that, and despite the fact that the more migrant friendly side of politics is currently in control, despite all of that, it's as depressing as you say it is. That makes me also depressed about Europe because I feel that even with those massive structural changes, we wouldn't necessarily be in, in, in a better place. So that's a gloomy thought. I just think it should be noted, though, that although, yes, the Democrats are, are more like, quote unquote, pro-immigration than than the Republicans, that the bar is on the floor. And that if you look at the Obama years, for example, Rahm Emanuel, when he was at the Clinton and Obama administration, wanted to make the Democrats the party that was tough on migrants and on immigrants. Obama was blasted by migrants' rights organizations as the, quote unquote, deporter in chief. Right now, yes, he he came to advocate for the dreamers, i.e., people who have been in this country basically since they were little kids and have grown up here and to give them a pathway to citizenship and to let them stay. I kind of don't want to like in any way sugarcoat the Democrats position on immigration, which by and large I think is, <laughs> is abhorrent. Well, having, having, having made that gloomy observation, I will, I will say this, that one of the reasons why Frontex, I, d- I don't know if Emmanuel, you want to come in on this, but one of the reasons why Frontex has been I was asking about whether or not they recognize a humanitarian vocation. And as as Emmanuel, you were saying, the answer is not really. Frontex sees its role as being the defender of fortress Europe. That is an expression of political choices. There is a perception in Brussels and in other capitals that European voters want a big wall, essentially, to keep migrants out. And those are politicians who are deriving that message from election results, both within countries and in, for example, the European Parliament elections. And so having been a bit gloomy about it, I, you know, people do have a choice, certainly within the European Union, they can vote for parties that have different policies on these sorts of things in, in, in elections, they can make their voices heard. I mean, I don't know if, as a final thought, Emmanuel, you want to offer any, any reflections on that on, on what individual citizens, certainly within, for example, the European Union can do to make it known that the fortress Europe is not the will of most or, or many Europeans. Well, yeah, I think you're quite right to highlight the fact that we can vote to try and change things, knowing that not only Frontex, but also the Libyan Coast Guard are funded, are subventioned by the European Union. And, you know, a few days ago, there was that really shocking video of uh, the Libyan Coast Guard shooting at people in distress on a rubber boat in Maltese uh, search and rescue zone, so in a European territory. They were shooting at them and they were trying to ram their boat. And, you know, they do doing that in all impunity and they're doing that with boats that are actually bought for them by the European Union. And so if people want to change that, first they have to become aware that this situation is happening right now and that it actually, there are people, you know, we're talking about migrants and it kind of dehumanizes people that are on that boat for 2021 only, there's 926 lives 
that have been officially lost at sea. That's probably way below the real figures, but each of their persons had a proper life. Each of, the, of those persons was entitled to, to lead a life that didn't end up at sea. So if we want to, to see policy changes, then uh, we, we have to keep being informed on what's happening right now within the European borders. I just want to underscore that you're, you're you're completely correct that I think the language that we use, including in this podcast, right, which is uh, like a, a well-intentioned conversation on the dignity of, of people trying to immigrate, we, the, the language that we use does, it, it sort of removes us from what's happening. And a thing that I think about a lot being American is like, okay, what's the difference between my grandparents and great-grandparents and people now, right? It's that my family had the, had the good fortune of getting on a boat a few decades earlier, right? And that's it. Like that is all that separates me from people being turned away from the border now. That and like geography and the distribution of economics in the world. But like that's that's what we're talking about. It, it's it's the luck of where and when you're born. Otherwise, that that could be you. And I guess that's what I would like to present to to listeners of this podcast to think about. Well, a huge amount of food for thought there. And Emmanuel, thank you so much for going there and being witness to this and for talking to us about it and for writing for us about it. And as I say, listeners, you can read Emmanuel's powerful piece about this on the New Statesman website, newstatesman.com. So I'd strongly recommend that. Well, that leaves us only to look ahead to the next week in world affairs. Emmanuel, what will you be paying attention to in global news over the next seven days? Well, you know what? I'll, I'll keep my eyes focused on Central Mediterranean because at the moment there's no NGO rescue boats out at sea and departures are still taking place. There are still people in distress in the search and rescue zones. And since there's not a lot of people talking about it, I'm going to keep focusing on that. And how about you, Emily? I'm going to change gears completely and just remind listeners that, as we discussed on this podcast last week, the Tokyo Olympics starts next Friday. And I, I guess more than any single sport or like whether or not the U.S. men's basketball team will be able to redeem itself after losing to Nigeria and Australia. I'll be looking at what that actually means for Japan, which is having hosting these games with a state of emergency. I'll be paying attention to the ongoing events in South Africa, which I fear are moving in a very worrying direction. And I think also significant is that from Saturday, the 17th of July, the Hajj will take place in Medina and Mecca in Saudi Arabia. The largest annual gathering of Muslims and normally of people anywhere in the world. But it will be much smaller this year than usual, um, down from millions usually to just 60,000. And there are some quite stringent measures in place. And I think like the Olympics, another interesting example of a big global gathering that has changed greatly because of the pandemic and a measure of how, how far we still have to go before things return to any sort of normality. So with that, I'd like to say a big thank you to Emmanuel for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And a reminder that you can also subscribe to our World Review newsletter at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review, where we discuss many of the subjects that come up on this podcast, but also go into some more depth on some of them. So do sign up to that if you haven't already. As another reminder, if you have enjoyed this podcast, be sure to tell your friends, nemeses, that cousin you haven't spoken to in a while, and like, subscribe, and leave a review. Thank you very much for listening. Our producer has been Adrian Bradley. And until next week. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson 
for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance is completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.